Welcome everybody to this short podcast and this is a conversation between the three M4D co-directors, so Chris Leather, Jeremy Shoham and myself. And we wanted to come together and have this conversation to reflect on the previous three podcasts that we've had the privilege of recording with our guests since June, in fact, of this year. So in June, we had a conversation with Habib El-Rahman, who is the G7 Plus uh, Deputy General of the Secretariat for the G7 Plus. That was fascinating. And then after that, we were privileged to chat and release a podcast in August with Karima El-Hadar from the Secretariat in the Scaling Up Nutrition Movement in Yemen. And then following that, we had such an interesting conversation with Sean Baker from Helen Kellen international. What we wanted to do today was just each one of us give a one minute summary of the standout points coming out of those three podcasts and just have a discussion about what we took away from them, um, what we feel are important defining issues coming out of those conversations that we might want to take further forward and explore further in N4D and with our various colleagues at country level. So what we're each going to do is just talk for a couple of minutes about those takeaways from those podcasts and then just engage in a free-flowing, typical N4D conversation. So this podcast will be, as I say, really short, maybe 20 minutes, no more. And I'm going to kick off, um, but I'm going to first of all let Jeremy and Chris say hello. Hello, everybody. Hello. And I'm going to talk just a little bit about what listening back to Habib's podcast recording earlier today, uh, what were some of the takeaways for me? Now, I'm not going to do it justice because if you haven't listened to it, I'd really recommend you do because it's that good and so interesting. But to say, as I mentioned earlier, Habib is with the G7 Plus Secretariat. Their focus is very much on, uh, it's a platform of collective advocacy and dialogue on reconciliation. So their focus is on fragile and conflict affected states mainly. And they do a lot of fragile to fragile state cooperation, which is interesting. But the main tone of the conversation with Habib was on the aid architecture. And one of the standout things that Habib relayed to us is that if you look at the aid architecture today, it hasn't really changed since the Second World War. It isn't really taking on board new realities and it lacks a long term vision. Now, some of that is to do with the hand that are tied of donors, really, uh, in terms of their tax paying public uh, and their own limitations within the political realms in their countries. But nonetheless, I don't think Habib is of the view that that excuses lack of progress in aid transformation. And he gave in that podcast a number of examples of where aid spend really does bypass local actors including government, to a very high degree and at quite a scale. So 
you know, up to 80% of aid flowing into conflict-affected countries not really being passed through government or local organisations. And in fact, they may not even know what that aid is for or where it's going. Um, and so certainly couldn't be held accountable for that aid. So I think that was a big standout. And what he pointed out is that for there to be change, not only do you need more peace, of course, because without peace, there is going not going to be much progress in development. You need much greater trust. Um, donors and international organizations need to trust much more in government and local entities, including non-government organizations. And it isn't good enough to continue to bypass government and local entities in that way. So his message, uh, which did finish on a positive note, is that we need to honor high-level principles to transform the aid relationships that exist. And by that, he was talking about, and it's in the Busan Partnership Agreement, encouraging local ownership, aligning development programs with country development strategies, reducing transaction costs of aid, which are enormous, avoiding fragmentation of aid, so between humanitarian development and peace building initiatives, and having common results frameworks to guide the aid relationship in the country. So that's what I took away from listening back to the very good conversation with Habib. So, Jeremy, why don't you tell us what you listened to and what you took away from the conversation with Karima? Sure. Well, like like you, Kamal, I'm not going to do it justice. Karima's podcast really merits listening to in full. Um, Karima, of course, really works at the coalface of the interaction between government and international development partners. And her message was very similar to uh, Habib's in that uh, she feels that the aid system is not adapting to uh, long-term contexts which uh, which need uh, evolution in the way that international partners are doing business. She described how Yemen uh, has pretty much had the same high burden of malnutrition since 2010 despite annual humanitarian response programs, most of which have been fully funded. And that development partners haven't really supported the multi-sector nutrition action plan in Yemen, which is in spite of the fact that this plan has been driven and supported by both the de facto government and the recognized government. And her view and the view of most of her colleagues, national colleagues, is that there won't be progress on nutrition until international partners change the way they're working as supporter, a system strengthening and resilience building multi-sector approach as enshrined in the multi-sector nutrition action plan. And that cyclical humanitarian response programs won't change anything as, as has shown to be the case. She also very eloquently uh, express the frustration at national level. Again, this reflects what Habib has been saying, said in his podcast, this narrative of international partners that they can't change the way they work because of the level of insecurity in, in Yemen, the level of political interference and bias in allocation of resources, the institutional fragmentation, uh, and therefore it's impossible for international partners to uh, to support government directly, to fund directly through government. Now, Karima 
has a completely different narrative, um, which is that there are huge opportunities in Yemen to do development. It's it's rich in resources, both human and natural resources. She gave many, many examples of where there could be successful development programming, aquaphonics, coffee, honey, fisheries, to name but a few. But that international systems seems to fail to recognise these opportunities and still clings to what she sees as a very outdated narrative now. Uh, so the conclusion really is that things need to change and these tidal excuses can no longer be used and that government are fed up with hearing them. So I'll, I'll stop there. Chris, uh, perhaps you could you could summarise what you heard from Sean's podcast. Thanks. Well, as you both said, uh, Sean's uh, podcast episode is worth listening to in its entirety, uh, just as with uh, Habib and, and Karima's. Uh, it's difficult to do any of these justice in a in a very short summary. But I think Sean's main message was that we have made significant progress in a number of countries in reducing different forms of malnutrition. And he he gave examples from countries like Nepal and Senegal. So progress is possible, and we have the evidence for what can be achieved, for what works at scale. And we also know the costs of inaction. So his strong message that was that the persistence of malnutrition is ultimately a political choice. We have the technical solutions. We may not always have the technical capacities to deliver. Um, but so ultimately, malnutrition is a, is a political choice. And the lack of progress around the world in reducing malnutrition at quicker rates is just unacceptable. So his key question was how to make nutrition a political non-negotiable. And what are the roles of different people, different institutions at country and regional and global levels in making nutrition a political non-negotiable? He highlighted what he sees as key factors that determine success or, or hinder progress. At country level, he highlighted how there are key individuals and, and key networks of people at a technical level, but also at a political level who have tenacity, who work long term, who are committed to the cause of nutrition and really advocate and strengthen technical capacities, but also political commitment. He highlighted the importance of leadership and how everybody can really play a leadership role. Success cannot just depend upon a president or a prime minister leading the way, but success really requires everybody from a community up to the national level, whether in technical roles or political roles, leading from where they are. He also talked about the importance of prioritisation. We can't, it's given constrained resources, it's never possible to really implement everything that needs to be done or should be done to improve nutrition. There's a need to really prioritise key actions in different sectors that can really deliver impact and improved outcomes. And then there should be accountability around those key priorities that are identified. And then at the global level, he was talking about reflecting on the state of the global nutrition architecture, the whole range of different institutions that have a role to play in supporting countries to make progress on nutrition and 
highlighting the, the the characteristics of strong leadership from global level and how it's important always to have people affected by malnutrition at the centre and at the heart of everything that, that we do. Of course, leaders have their own organisational mandates and interests to serve and, and to follow and, and to promote. But at the same time, everybody needs to be thinking about the collective role and how the system as a whole can work together better to deliver better nutrition for, for everybody. He also reflected on the fact that um, there isn't a global fund for nutrition as there is for other issues like malaria or HIV AIDS. Um, reflected whether there was a strategic area over the last 20 years or so in not really pushing for that, but talked about various options for ways in which international funding could be better delivered and supported. But ultimately, malnutrition is a political issue. Good. Well, that's really great to hear both of your reflections. And I think really what we're talking about here is where we started on this podcast series, the very first conversation the three of us had, which was saying, really, we've got to think about the whole political economy of malnutrition. And that's really what each of our inspirational guests have been talking about in so many ways. I mean, obviously with Sean, we got a little more into the weeds of the technical fact that there's such a strong evidence base for some of the key nutrition relevant interventions. We just don't seem able to get them to scale. So those aren't technical obstacles, they're political and economic obstacles or political mm. economy, including institutional obstacles. But I think we've been very lucky with the guests that we've had in that they've really given us those very clear insights and messages from their different standpoints, all from very different standpoints. Mm. Um, Habib, actually, when we asked him, uh, you know, what are your takeaways from sitting in the three-day Yemen National Nutrition Gathering that we were all part of earlier this year, and that's where we met Habib, said actually he left feeling a strong sense of the fragmentation of the aid system in Yemen, but also a strong sense of the commitment of the national actors sat in that room, the different technical leads from the different ministries and deputy ministers and so forth, and felt there could really be progress um, and was going to go back to those colleagues in Yemen at the end of that meeting um, and take forward a number of thoughts that he had about addressing um, conflict, improving off the back of that, potential for improving food security and nutrition. Mm. So haven't we been lucky just to hear from all of those? But I guess what that might bring us to is what for us might be some of the outstanding questions that these conversations have led to. So maybe, Jeremy, you could say a little bit about the questions that listening back to Karima's podcast raised in your mind. Sure. I, I think maybe before that, though, just to, to say that I'm struck by uh, also a difference between our three uh, interviewees in, in, in that uh, uh, Karima and Habib very much talking about fragile conflict affected states and, and Sean was talking more broadly and 
you know, if you think about somewhere uh, like Kenya, for example, Kama, where you and I have recently been looking at the data uh, and, you know, stunting rates have in the last gone few years have just dropped from to do what 18% from about 26 or a quick reduction wasting less than 5%. Kenya's made huge strides, hasn't it? And yet these fragile contexts like Yemen haven't. Um, so no, they uh, haven't made strides. But what I think we also need to be careful of here mm. is our own a bias narrative from our point of view, mm. which is without all the humanitarian aid, as flawed as it is going into these countries, we don't know what those rates of malnutrition would now be. Mm. So Yemen, they haven't reduced them. So the trajectory isn't downward, but they've probably been able to hold them, especially the wasting indicator. So it hasn't got worse. So I think, you know, we need to give credit where credit's due, that the aid, humanitarian aid is probably doing the job of protecting against increase yes. and yeah. further excess mortality. Um, yeah. And, you know, that is not good enough, but it is probably what that aid is helping to deliver. It is saving lives. It is holding those rates at a, a, a constant rather than seeing a mass deterioration and, you know, full on famine. Situation. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't for a minute argue with that um, completely. It would, and and I think we do know that the rates would be far worse if without the humanitarian response. Um, I, I suppose the questions that uh, uh, strike me in relation to Karima's podcast is uh, uh, around how donors and UN agencies um, can can move can shift gear or move track? Uh, you know, what are the political, legislative, legislative, bureaucratic, administrative dictates which prevent them working in a different way in a context like Yemen? And are there examples from organisations like the World Bank which seem to do things differently, which could help uh, donors and UN agencies to make some kind of transition. And then just related to that, I sometimes wonder whether the size and remoteness of UN agencies in a country like Yemen prevent it from seeing and realising the opportunities for a different approach, a more development type of approach, and whether donors perhaps perpetuate this by adhering to us an economy of scale way of working, in other words, to put it bluntly, offloading a lot of their resources onto a, a UN system for administrative efficiency reasons, rather than having, say, contracts with multiple national actors that are closer to the ground and can see where opportunities exist. Those are yeah. thoughts I had. Yeah, good thoughts. And I think, you know, thinking back to Habib's podcast, he did mention, I think I reflected on that, the lack of long-term vision, which is really what you're describing amongst donors and the aid architecture. But on the other hand, he did also reflect that even in a country like Afghanistan, when he was there, they were able to work towards a new compact with the donors, especially the EU. So you just mentioned World Bank, who I think do have more flexibility and vision. Uh, in some of the ways they operate in countries. And I think that's also perhaps true 
of some donors in some contexts where they show that they are prepared to do things differently. So in Afghanistan, for example, Habib was saying they mm. uh, managed to do state budget support very slowly. Yeah. And, through, and that process forced joint analysis of the risks, including corruption, and then the joint management of those risks. And they just kept sort of growing that state budget based on a sort of annual cycle of risk management. And surely that has to be the way to go. Yeah. And why more donors don't do that, I'm not sure. Chris, what were some of the things that occurred to you? Reflecting on the three conversations, I think a key message we were hearing is the need to be working with national institutions more closely even in very complex political situations. So working more closely in supporting the work of, of line ministries. But then the question is, I think, how do you do that in a context where the ruling uh, authority is not internationally recognised, where there is, it's not possible to be engaging at a political level? But the call we've been hearing is, we need to be engaging much more at a technical level with the line ministries so that the capacity, the national capacities to deliver are not hollowed out and replaced by an international humanitarian aid system. But then how do you how do you do that in a way that ensures that um, services are provided according to need? that there isn't political manipulation and interference in the way that services are being provided. And I think, you know, I don't think we were necessarily hearing clarity and answers to that question, but that yeah. was the challenge that was being posed to us. And we explored it a little bit with Karima and, and we're asking her to elaborate on how you can do that uh, in the in the Yemeni context. And um, we referred at the end of the podcast with Karima to the Chatham House paper on aid in politically estranged states. So it's a question that is being asked more and more in different contexts. Yeah. And certainly that Chatham House paper highlights various options. But I, I think this is this is a, an area that as M4D we could and, and should explore in a bit more detail because um, it's easy to to say there's a need for more developmental approaches in fragile and conflict affected situations, but the practicalities of how you do that are not not very easy at all. Would that then? I agree with you, Chris. Totally. Does that lead us nicely to thinking about this roundtable event that we're going to be uh, helping coordinate, which is bringing together different actors and partners? for the Yemen context, as well as other countries, to talk about some of these really big political economy issues in relation to addressing malnutrition. Yes, definitely. So for our listeners, um, we're planning to organise a roundtable event early next year, hopefully in the middle of, of January, where we hope to hear from leaders from a couple of countries. Um, again, the focus will be on protracted crisis situations. We would like to hear, as we did with in, in the conversation with Karima, what are the opportunities and challenges for 
promoting and advancing what we call a nexus approach to nutrition. So an approach that brings together humanitarian actions, developmental assistance and peace building actions in a coherent joined up approach that can result in more sustainable progress in reducing malnutrition. To hear from the country level examples of progress that have been made, um, what are the opportunities for further progress, but what are the factors domestically, but also in terms of the way that the international aid system is, is structured and operates in accelerating that kind of progress and that different way of working. And then we also, in the roundtable discussion, want to hear from one or two global level leaders on how well they think the global aid system is working, what are its, are its successes, and where there are need for changes and reforms to better meet the needs of countries and ultimately people affected by malnutrition in these contexts of fragility and, and conflict. I think we should use the five principles, actually, myself, Chris, for that roundtable. I think we should hold everything to those principles that I relayed on Habib and then sort of drill down into them. You know, they're very straightforward, aren't they? They're very clear. There's no ambiguity around those high level principles that, by the way, so many of the bilateral donor organisations have signed up to, as well as numerous countries. Um, and I think that should be the overarching framework, if you like, for the round table and obviously bringing that round to the context of nutrition. But Jeremy, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, I agree with everything you just said. But one one thought I, I was going to add was that um, in these in these difficult, fragile contexts where there are real challenges for donors and UN agencies, uh, I wonder whether the so-called humanitarian development peace nexus is the entry point through which to provide the technical provision, which is more apolitical, because that. A framework around HTPN uh, offers an opportunity to to increase developmental approaches in tandem with humanitarian response, and seems to be unchallenging or less challenging for the international partners. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's a really good thought. Is there anything else that we think we want our listeners to hear? Just to add that I would expect that one of the key issues which will emerge from that roundtable discussion um, builds on what we've been discussing and hearing from the podcasts that we've done so far, and that is how there is a need to engage with politicians, with legislators in donor countries on what is possible Mm. in countries affected by conflict and fragility beyond the provision of vital life-saving humanitarian assistance that, as you said, Carmel, prevent situations uh, getting worse, but there are limits to what it can achieve. And we've heard from Habib and Karima and Sean how, uh, you know, much more is possible. Um, but often yeah. that is constrained by uh, policies, donor policies set by um, uh, the political environment in the donor countries. So I expect a key issue question will be how do we engage with the politicians that set the policies for donor aid and how do we influence those? Okay, that's great. And maybe I should just wrap up by letting the listeners know that there will be a output from that roundtable, if not some recording of it that we would share with our listeners. 
And in the meantime, between now and that roundtable, there'll be podcast series on the work M4D's been involved with, looking at and evaluating the national information platforms for nutrition. It's a really, really interesting uh, initiative that led to programs in nine countries, uh, all of them embedded in national institutions, which is a big tick for me. And then also we'll be releasing a podcast on the learning N4D have taken so far from the work we've been doing with our colleagues and partners in Yemen. So those are the two podcasts coming up this year. But I think probably the roundtable will be a podcast event and other outputs um, maybe later next year or early into 2024. So is there, I think that's probably a wrap. Uh, we probably have gone over as well the time that we said this podcast would take, mm-hmm. but I think that's fine. It's been a really interesting conversation with you both. And I guess now it's just a question of thanking our listeners and look forward to interacting again in the future. 